Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the gram, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we've got on an amazing guest. This is Saurabh Amari. He is the opinion editor at the New York Post and also the author of the brand new book, The Unbroken Thread. So welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Thank you for having me. No doubt. It's a pleasure to have you here. So I've done a brief intro there, but for people who may not be familiar with who you are and your work, tell them a little bit about you. Sure. So um, I was born and raised in Iran. Um, I moved to the United States when I was uh, 13. Um, I've been an ideological or spiritual and intellectual searcher ever since. Um, uh, I've been called a kind of frequent convert, but I decisively converted to Roman Catholicism in 2016, actually while I was living in, in London, Britain. Um, and um and that's obviously my faith has become kind of central dimension to ha- how I approach all sorts of public issues as a as a commentator here. Now I'm back home in, in the U.S. Now um, I was in, in the U.K. from 2014 to 2018, and I've written a book. It, it's coming out in Britain from Potter and Stoughton on, on June 10th. As you said, the title is "The Unbroken Thread." The subtitle is "Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos." And it's a book I wrote basically um, for my son, uh, Maximilian. He, he was two years old when I started writing. He's now four years old. And um, I have, I think, anxieties that a lot of other parents share. And those anxieties have to do with what kind of a man our culture will chisel out of him. Um, a culture that um, uh, often just tells young people or any, all of us that um, to be free means to be you know, to seek after your own well-being, usually defined in material terms, um, to get ahead in life and keep your options open, whatever that means, and not to be hindered by traditional restraints and authorities, whether that's religious ones or ancient uh, cultural restraints. These are all seen as a kind of the dead hand of tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are free to the extent that we're not regulated by these things anymore. My worry is that actually that way life and that way thinking makes us less free, makes us less happy. And so I wrote this book to try to guide my son and hopefully the reader to an older account of what it means to be free. That's the account we find in Judeo-Christian tradition, but also the Greco-Roman classical tradition. And also in a lot of Eastern tradition as well, like Confucianism. Um, and... So the way I do that is by, because I'm not a theologian, I'm not a philosopher, I'm just a journalist and storyteller, I pose 12 questions, 12 um, unasked questions that our society assumes have all been answered or that um, don't don't matter anymore because we now have science and technology or something like that. 
when in fact they're still pertinent questions and in many ways they poke holes in our contemporary certainties. And I explore each of them through the life of one great thinker. Some of them are um, kind of predictable. You know, in a book like this, you would definitely have C.S. Lewis and he's there and St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas. But some of them are kind of so will surprise people, like the radical Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel talking about the Sabbath. And um, so I kind of created a genre uh, where it's, I pose these questions, but then I don't answer them. I use the drama of someone else's life and a great thinker to, to um, work my son's way to, I would argue, a better answer than the ones that we typically take for granted. What does the word freedom mean to you? I think that freedom is a really interesting term because like many terms, like something like equality, it's one of those things that seems to mean very different things to different people. So when you say the word freedom in your perspective, what does freedom look like? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I Let me start by debunking the account of freedom that our society uh, provides. Okay. The definition of freedom our society provides is to be free means to be able to choose from the widest range of choices. So to choose from among contraries. I can eat burger, I can eat pizza, I can eat chicken, I can wear blue shoes, or I can wear brown shoes, or more radically I can define my own gender. Mm-hmm. It's, that's a matter of practice my own sexuality. Um, that's the modern account of freedom. The older account of freedom, which as I said, I think um, stretches across many civilizations, and many cultures, but generally the pre-modern version of freedom is actually that freedom is the freedom to do what you ought to do. That is, they assume that there is an objective account of what makes human beings happy, fulfilled, and for human beings to get to that state, they need um, to make uh, good choices, mm-hmm. um, and those choices are... Um, in each situation, obviously, the situations vary among people, but there is sort of one constant, constant um, elements or set of constant elements that, that make people, all people happy across all time, across all culture. And so to be free means to be able to um, fulfill that version of yourself, to be able to, and, and so, and in order to do that, because human beings also have all sorts of base appetites and, um, they can be um, tyrants to themselves, let alone political tyrants like dictators or what have you. There's a tyrant inside you who keeps you away from your true happiness because it seeks after sort of immediate sexual gratification or um, is greedy or is irresponsible. So to be free in this older version means to be able to conquer that interior tyrant so that when the ancients say self-government, they don't just mean that we get to vote and choose our political leaders. It also means that you literally govern yourself. Um, and you're detached from these kind of your tendency to be acquisitive, your tendency to be greedy, your tendency to be vicious, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not necessarily the case that just being unrestrained and unrestricted, you're free. In fact, um, the truly free person in this account of freedom accepts limits, accepts uh, various limits because they help him toward his, ultimately his or her true fulfillment. Mm. I hear that. My immediate thought to it, however, would be, is by that definition, couldn't 
anybody of any ideology use that and claim authority over it to ram down whatever their personal or ideological view should be. So, for example, I've heard similar arguments sort of used to argue against concepts such as freedom of speech, mm -hmm. right? Or, for example, in the USA um, against the Second Amendment, some people would actually make an argument that it gives people less freedom because it's potentially dangerous or it could potentially harm people or put people at risk. And if people are not safe and secure, then they're not free. I've actually heard people justify the measures that have happened over the past year and a half um, using sort of a similar logic that yeah. unless everyone adopts this authoritative view of um, safety, then actually people are not free. Um, so I, whilst I understand what you're saying, and if the world were run by um, angels, then I'm I'm more on board with it. But given that sort of anyone in an authoritative position could say, okay, well, I know I know what's best for everybody else, and so this is my view on it, and this is how it should be. So, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, um, so first of all, I would say that um, we would have to come to an agreement of whether or not there is an objective morality. That is, yes. that um, there are that good things are good and bad things are bad. And that human beings using their natural reason, let, set aside religion or divine revelation, just your natural mm -hmm. reason, you can discern what's good for an individual and discern what's good for a political community. Um, if that's the case, then um, uh, uh, the authority that Whatever that may be, now in, in some places it might be a king, it might be a democratically elected government. Any authority that leads people um, toward what truly makes people happy, towards the their their good, uh, the common good of the whole, and common good is not doesn't destroy the individual good. It's actually it um, builds on and helps the individual. It expands the individual good as well. So any authority that does that is not. Um, not necessarily an authoritarian dictator uh, or, or an oppressor. A better word for it is not a tyrant. Um, there are tyrants when um, either an individual or a government um, unjustly imposes on a people um, various measures that go against what objectively is good for people, which, again, we have to be able to decide whether we can, we can know that. Um, but if you assume with me that, that good things are good and bad things are bad and you can know that, then there is not this tension between authority and the individual conscience, right? So let me put this in a concrete example. In the, in the modern sense, in the past two, three hundred cents years, um, what it means to have a free conscience got redefined to mean whatever you interiorly think. So its conscience became completely privatized. Um, I mean, we could go trace the history of this. It partly has to do with the Reformation and the concept of private judgment, beginning with I get to interpret the Bible on my own without some hierarchical authority telling me. And that got dilated over time to me. My own conscience also with respect to the moral dilemmas of my life. Um, I have kind of sovereign right to decide it. But if, if a conscience doesn't reflect a 
some objective moral law, then it has no uh, has no value, has no strength. In other words, in a situation where you say, well, you know, one conscience may come to believe that it's okay to abort unborn children, and another conscience might come to believe that it's not okay to abort unborn children, mm-hmm. um, and neither no one can be sure which of the two is right. Then the conscience loses its value because it's a it's a kind of completely private relativistic thing. Mm-hmm. A conscience is only a conscience insofar as it reflects some again that deeper account of what it means to be truly human, truly moral, so forth. And an authority is only an authority if a legitimate authority if it vindicates that moral law. So in other words, an unjust authority that that goes against the natural law goes against the moral law. Is not an authority. That's just a vicious tyrant. Um, but an authority that helps guide people and form them toward the true good, um, and therefore, in a way, amplifies the voice of the individual conscience. That's not a tyrant. That's a that's a legitimate authority. Now, every government on earth, one way or another, when it makes laws, uses coercion. There is no situation in which some amount of coercion is impossible. So the question is, who coerces? Toward what ends, and whether uh, it does so reasonably or viciously, and so on and so forth. But there's no situation you could ever find in which, um, in a way, you're not you're not morally regulated. And we see now with with the loss of kind of traditional authorities, um, like the kind of the church, uh, 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 the traditional family, and so on and so forth. It's not that we've become totally liberated. Instead, we've had these kind of substitute authorities. Um, that are much more unreasonable, like gender ideology, where you're kind of forced to um, acknowledge things that you know aren't true, right? About 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 the bio, sort of embodied biological basis of sex. Um, and if you don't use the right pronouns, you can get tr- in trouble in the public square. So we are coerced, no matter what. The question is whether that coercion upholds a good, reasonable account of what it means to be human, what it means to be happy, or one that's unreasonable like the one that kind of is being shoved down our, all of our throats the past especially the past two, two three years it's kind mm-hmm. of so intense who determines that who sets those rules so i mean classically i mean someone like aristotle who's sort of the basis of um so much of western political thought and then as he as aristotelian thought gets incorporated into the moral teaching of the catholic church which is sort of the basis for a lot of concepts when people say natural law um, through St. Thomas Aquinas, would say um, either the people as a whole do it or some person who's designated as a kind of uh, political regent or actor. So that might be, in some societies, it might be a, uh, a ruling party, and that's democratically elected. In some cases, it might be uh, a monarchy, a constitutional monarchy, or whatever you might have. But someone—that's the responsibility of the of the ruler to lead his people to happiness. That's ethics 101, sort of chapter one of of, 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 of the ethics. Mm-hmm. Has anyone actually successfully done that, though? Or I mean, see much of that. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, is is perfection achievable on Earth? Mm-hmm. No. I mean, and, and you, said, you you yourself said there's there's fallen people, but uh, are there better and worse? Situations. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's a. It's an. It's an interesting. It's an interesting concept. It's one of those things where. Yeah, it's a weird one. In theory, 
I partly agree. I just also think that everybody, including, you know, perhaps my own or your own, say, ideological opponents, also think the same thing, but what they're calling good, you may call bad or evil, and what we may call good, they may call bad or evil. So I'm yeah, not but just to because be super morally relativistic. No, you know, I know. Just but, but, think of, okay. Just because there are many opinions about the good doesn't mean that there isn't an, an objective good. So hmm. no, I, I don't. I don't disagree on that. I just think I don't know. I mean, there would have been a time in history for for many many times where people would have argued that I don't know a super long running institution such as slavery is an objective good, and the vast majority mm-hmm. of people are in agreement, and the governments are in agreement, and the so-called leaders, even some of the religious leaders, etc., are all in agreement, um, and in fact, in some cases, are even using religious books to attempt to justify it. So being now in 2021 and being modern-day humans, we all look back at that, regardless of political ideology, and everyone is like, oh my gosh, like that's that's appalling. That's obviously, objectively immoral enslaving a human being or mistreating people like that etc right but notice um, as, you, as okay. you do that as you do that you make a definitive moral judgment so you suggest that there is a i i do i, I i'm not a, i don't think all I, i'm not in the everything is relative camp at all yeah. um i think when it comes to morality it's an interesting question i think it's a i think it's a little bit of a sliding scale i think there are certain things where it's like very let me say objectively bad and wrong like there are some things it's just okay murder we we all agree conservative liberal libertarian whatever you know religious irreligious whatever everyone agrees murder wrong maybe they reach that by different pathways or explain Mm -hmm. it in slightly different ways why they think it's wrong um and there are certain things like that and then i think there are some other things where it's more it's more gray or at least it it appears to be more gray um it certainly appears to be and you know you might have a 50 50 split in the population where this side is saying no this is the objective morality this other side is saying no this is the objective morality and is it just a democracy thing wherever who has the most voices or where is the ultimate authority on that and when it comes to authority as well people believe in different authorities um one question i actually had for you which is interesting is you am i right in saying you converted to catholicism about five or six years ago is that 2016 okay so on a sub on a subject like this what prior to that were you simply atheistic or agnostic yeah i mean i I declared myself an atheist when i was 13 okay a long time for me to do a process of Mm. of reading Actually, reading the Bible and reading books by Pope Okay. Great intellectual. Um, I became convinced that not only is there a God, but a personal God, and ultimately a God who has revealed himself mm-hmm. in the Hebrew Bible and ultimately is the God of the cross. Um, and yeah, I, I wrote a memoir about that. I, I um, titled From Fire by Water. Um, it's kind of long, circuitous uh, journey. Um, okay. But, you know, one of the criticisms uh, that I often get for this new book is, you know, you stand for, let's say, traditionalism, that mm-hmm. society should help authoritatively guide people. Um, so, for example, in the new book, I argue that we should restore um, 
Sunday trading bans, blue laws they call them. Oh, okay, okay. So actually, in, in Britain, they're still, I believe they're not entirely been done away with. But in the in, United States... In, in the UK, stuff opens late and closes early. In exactly. some European, In some European countries... Totally closed on Sunday. Like, like uh, it's, Germany, it's, for example. It's from Germany, France, Vietnam, yeah. Austria. Um, and, but in the United States, um, you know, in, in the beginning in the 20th century, slowly these blue laws were chipped away at. Um, the last statewide blue law was, was actually only overturned in 2019. And what the, and I think that examining this kind of helps make my case and, and Eliminate what kind of traditions we're talking about. The people who, who said we should dump, do away with the blue laws mm-hmm. argued that um, you know you should have choice. On Sunday, mm-hmm. some people want to work, some people want to shop, some people want to worship, and so you should be able to, to to do that. So it looks like they they promised the kind of liberation. What it means in practice, given the way our economy works, is that this liberty turned out to be really liberty for large corporations and, and retail, kind of big box retail stores who wanted to be open on Sundays because the smaller businesses, the mom and pop shops, didn't, couldn't staff the extra hours anyway. So they weren't the ones who were clamoring for this. It was like the Chamber of Commerce, a large uh, corporation. And set aside the religious dimension of blue laws or Sunday trading bans, um, you know, it's good for people to spend one day a week kind of just with family contemplation. Uh, it just was bad for workers, right? In, in, in the sense that um, uh, it, it, one more of the day of the week became consumed with this kind of harried lifestyle where you don't have it in, in pause. And especially bad for working class people whose, whose schedules are often very itinerant. It's not like blue collar, you know, white collar people, professionals um, still actually managed to get some time with their families sometimes in Sundays and so forth. Mm-hmm. When you're at the mercy of Amazon warehouse managers in terms of where you work, when you work, um, you sort of, uh, they might schedule you just when you have a, a soccer game or a football game for your kid and you lost that opportunity. Um, and we're all just ever more harried, right? The, the loss of the Sabbath, the idea of rest, has mm-hmm. not kind of left us liberated. We're just always miserable. All, you know, if you're a white collar type like me, your phone is all buzzing. <laughs> so, what I'm trying to suggest is that what was looked like a restriction in traditional society, right? Why did why did the Sabbath uh, so important to ancient peoples? Whether it's Jews, Christians, or Muslims, they designated different days to be the one day that's holy or separate from the rest of the week. But they all had the same idea that somehow these restrictions actually make us freer. Mm-hmm. Um, what looked like liberation, the loss of that, in practice, turned out to be um, a loss of freedom, a loss of peace, a loss of kind of having a little bit of repose and time with your family. Now, what people, to get back to my original point, what people will say to me is, you know, you were able to reach your Catholic faith only through this process of, of kind of discovery and choice-making that liberal societies like ours be uh, possible. I don't think that's actually true. I think people converted in pre-liberal, pre-modern times yeah. as well. Um, but the larger point is that, yes, I mean, I value the journey that I went through and I wrote a book about it. Right? That, that I went through this gauntlet of terror before I reached the truth. But I don't necessarily want society to be organized in such a way where 
everyone we have we set up a society where uh, a life of decent ordinary virtue is very difficult. Children are assailed by pornography before they hit puberty. Right, nine out of ten teenagers hit see hardcore porn before they ten eleven. That's a bizarre society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, it, it, and in all sorts of other ways, you just sort of face degradation and then see, okay, well, who can make it through that gauntlet of, of temptations and errors to reach truth? Mm-hmm. Society should kind of make it easier for people to, to make the journey that I did, is what I'm suggesting. Mm, I understand that. How so? When you say society should do that, do you mean individuals or communities or state governments, federal governments, what sort of level are we talking here and what could be done? Well, um, there's, a, there's a principle in, in Catholic in Christian social teaching called subsidiarity, which means that um, um, every problem should be left to the smallest being possible to solve it. That is, mm-hmm. um, if you, for example, have a, a problem that only is a matter for a town mayor, let's say, in a small town in in southern England, let's say, um, and the sort of local council can solve it, that it's inappropriate for um, the, the, the national government, like Westminster Parliament, to, to rule on that, right? Because then it's a kind of imposition on it. Even smaller, if something can be solved by private families, um, by families on their own, then the local council shouldn't impinge on that. But there are problems that, you know, are national problems. And that those call for um, national or international solutions. So I, I'm open to where that falls. And that in some cases, things can be done. Um, what I'm wary of is a certain kind of libertarian here in the United States says, you know, here, um, you know, you have massive opioid addiction. The problem, of, I would say, of pornographization of daily life, which mm-hmm. must be doing something to the fact that people are informing families and men aren't dating. Not settling down. Is it could it be that they this widespread access to hardcore porn is sort of twisting our brain? Um, and and a certain type of libertarian uh, will say, look, uh, we should. That's why the churches need to preach, and that's why all of us need to quote unquote evangelize the culture or, or act in civil society. And those private exhortations are good. I don't discount the value of them, mm-hmm. but. Um, in other cases, you need state action because it's a problem that, that um, individuals or families can't solve. Yes. That's why we have government. Um, and again, there has to be an element of, St. Thomas says in the Treatise and Law, that ex- private exhortations in virtue are good, but they're not efficacious because there needs to be penalty and law for, for the, to help people live virtuously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, but I... The level of government again is, is depends on the problem. Some yeah. some problems can be solved at a local level. Yeah, I understand. I think the reason why I know the concern of a lot of libertarians, including myself, if I'm to call myself one, with some of those notions is simply there's something I often say, which is like just being wary of bringing weapons to the party that you wouldn't want used against you. I get. Right? It. I get. Yeah. It. Yeah. yeah. So the so the concept of Okay, if this is, you know, you've got your people, your side is running things for for a period of time. And so in that case, okay, the government doing that is fine because I agree with it. Government doing that's fine because I agree with it, etc. 
but then you get the issue of oh okay that swaps around and maybe there's someone in power who you are very much ideologically at odds with i mean what's going on now you've got this whole woke ideology people pushing critical race theory gender ideology etc and institutionalizing it putting it into uh schools universities workplaces etc people are like hey no i don't I don't want this. And they're like, we don't care if you don't want it. Like you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're having this, right? This is mandatory. This is coming from the state now. And there could even be penalties, not just socially, but even, uh, legally. legally, or even if it's you being deplatformed or kicked off of social media because you, you said the wrong pronoun or you did the wrong thing. And so my view in light of that is, ooh, maybe no one should have that power. So I can understand why people make that argument. I think it's it's less about the means to get there. I think a lot of it is the no, well, it's not. It's, it's less about the end goal, and it's more about okay, this is something that once that power is there and that precedent has been set, this weapon can easily be then used to batter other people over the head, whether that's religious people or it's uh, conservatives or it's people who think this or it's people who think that, etc. Um, so that's, I know for me personally, and I think for a lot of libertarian leaning people, that's always a, a big concern. Um, and I think even, I don't know, even from, I, I've got friends who are, you know, more, more liberal, more left leaning, et cetera. And even if it's say someone who's was super crazy anti, anti Trump, right? Mm -hmm. Who's someone who legitimately thought he's a, he's a racist and he's the next Hitler and he's a white supremacist, whatever. And I'm like, okay, so you do want to give that government more and more power, right? Do you, do you, do you want them to have even more authority over your reach? And of course, when Trump is president, they'll be like, no, 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 we don't want, we don't want, you know, the Trump administration doing all this stuff. But then it's like, okay, well, maybe that position of power should be limited and kept in check so that they can't just put in boundaries. It's, it's, it's a complicated one. Like it's I one agree. of those issues I can, I can very much understand the different perspectives. I, I'm just very much a, I'd say politically I'm libertarian, but then sort of socially or in my personal life, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not super libertarian. I'm relatively kind of moderately conservative, I would say. Um, yeah, me, so just because, that, yeah, go yeah. ahead, go ahead. The, the point about this, this one I hear often, okay. you use power, someone else will use power. Um, there's one basic point, which if you go into politics, you're going into politics to use power. Sure. The political animals. That, and so the idea that, um, I won't, I shouldn't use power because someone else might use it. Um, you basically, as a political actor, you're basically saying, I don't want to accomplish it. Mm -hmm. Um, the other point is, I would suggest that, um, it's just impossible to not have some orthodoxy enshrined in the public square. You see that now so clearly. Um, in other words, um, the typical American conservatives, but also I think in Britain, the Tories or uh, kind of conservative kind of cultural actors, um, <laughs> went along with the idea that you know let's leave it to private communities and private actors and not try to enshrine. And what you see is when the traditional authorities fall, what comes in their place is not live and let live. Mm -hmm. It's actually, it's, it's wokeism, it's wokeism, it's critical race theory, yeah. it's gender mm -hmm. ideology, and it's coercively. 
So there's there's no situation in which a kind of vacuum persists. So you had an older, let's say, set of traditional authorities, which wasn't perfect, uh, including not least in the fact that, yes, you know, racism was picked into it in the United States uh, illegally, so that had to be reformed. I'm not against every reform, obviously. But the loss on the whole of the kind of neo-Christian framework that guided the West um, has not resulted in, in the kind of libertarian utopia of, of living that we've lived. Some other force was always bound to come in. Um, and um, it just so happens that the older kind of uh, Judeo-Christian framework had this account of the inherent dignity of the human person, mm-hmm. um, and it also had it also had a, an account of uh, human beings as fallen, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that actually restrained uh, government because if you believe that uh, you know everyone's fallen, you're willing to give everyone a break. You're, you're, yeah. You might uphold an orthodoxy, but in practice, you're very, very tall. You can be very, very tolerant. Mm. Um, and and certainly, the fall applied equally to everyone. Um, now we have, for example, in, in critical race theory, an account of original sin that just applies to certain people. If if, if you're, you know, white, you carry the sin of racial, the stain of racial sin. That can't be washed, but for you, you know, bowing down to evil community. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so, so, so I just feel like, um, yeah. well, bottom line, I just think one orthodoxy or other will always mm-hmm. be enshrined in the public square. The only question is choose. Do you want a reasonable one? Do you want a, a reasonable Yeah, I, I agree with what you said in theory, but in practice, I feel like that didn't really happen or it took so long. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're both, we're both Christians here. Um, yeah. and so we're talking about a value system going back 2000 plus years. But I mean, if you take a country such as the USA, it took until the 1960s. It took 1000, it took 2000 years for those Christian principles about people, all men being created equal. And, you know, equality, it, it took so long for that to be, um, to, to, to reach that level. So whilst I sort of, in theory, I, I totally agree with that. But then in practice, I'm like, wow, despite all that, and despite Christianity actually playing a much bigger role and having more authority in society for, you know, millennia, um, it's only relatively recent that people through various means reached a level of thinking, oh, okay, this should, apply to everybody the rules should be equal and fair, sure and the laws should be equal and fair etc so but, what, but, what but would let, you me, say let me note though that that um well two things one is mm-hmm. that um historic christianity after the sort of the conversion of the emperor constantine when it becomes the official uh, first the legal religion and then the official religion of the Roman empire in various ways humanized uh the roman empire right mm-hmm. um you know, uh, various religious orders in the, fought against the idea that if a child is unwanted, you just expose it, leave it outside the city walls. Um, that became non-normative. Um, uh, the status of women was much improved, right? Because that in, in Christianity, there's sort of the, the dignity of, of a woman as equally made in the image of God as, as man. Um, 
uh, and then right later, obviously, various uh, religious orders in, um, in into late antiquity and the medieval era campaigned against against uh, slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, the American situation was unique in, in many ways. The kind of uh, pseudo scientific racialized ideology that characterized especially slavery and then later the sort of apartheid regime in the United States is a product of is a modern thing. It's it's not um it's it's not inherent or intrinsic it's is to Christianity at all. It just unfortunately used the rhetoric mm-hmm. of of Christianity and, and lent the legitimacy of the legitimacy of the cross. You have used the cross to legitimate these awful um, racial system, but I would note that it's interesting that the movement to abolish then slavery and then yes. ultimately the civil rights movement did not come from a place of of, of atheism. Mm-hmm. Um, William Wilberforce, the great British abolitionist, was obviously about evangelical. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King used the, the language of natural law and, yeah. and Thomas Aquinas to critique uh, apartheid in, in the American South. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would, I would say that are there bad traditions? Absolutely. But mm-hmm. the way, I think the way you critique them is by going to the commanding heights of a better, truer tradition. Um, whereas the loss in the, in the atheist regimes in the 20th century were the worst regimes, right? the communism, mm-hmm. Nazism, with this kind of neo-pagan. Um, it, because if you, if you don't think there's anything special about the origins of the human person, the origins of destiny, then you can do anything to grow. Oh, yeah. Even a simple concept of the idea that, you know, you are the absolute highest authority and that there's no authority over you looking above you. Um, I think that also changes the way people, it changes the way people behave. Um, and so I think if you have a, you know, a maniacal, I think one thing a lot of dictators, (laughs) most maniacal dictators have in common is they think they, they position themselves as gods. Right, mm-hmm. they think that they're not accountable for anything. They're above the law. They can't sin because they themselves determine what is a sin and what is not. Um, and yeah, when a man has that sort of unchecked power, or a regime does, then yeah, that's I think I agree. That's when you get the most horrendous tyrannies, and we've seen that play out in multiple countries. We've seen that happen in history, etc. I think it's um it's a really interesting one because I I, I how would I put it? It's one of those things where I think people can, depending on what someone's belief system and ideology is, it's 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 kind of easy. People tend to cherry pick and gloss over certain things and then cherry pick certain things to kind of back it up. A lot of atheists, for example, will say, oh, you know, well, religion is divisive or um, it does this or, you know, one weird thing people sometimes say is um, only religion can make a good person do a bad thing or something like that. And I'm just like. No, like that's that that that's very ahist, ahistorical. Like you know, are there people? Are there religious extremists and terrorists? Yes, ab- absolutely. Right. I'm not. I'm not denying that. But to sort of suggest that that's the average or standard religious person is not honest. Just like it wouldn't be honest to suggest that the the average person who's atheistic is you know some sort of horrible communist or Nazi or so, yeah. or, or something like that. It's it's sort of a. I, I think. People can use any ideology, whether it's religious or political or neither, to justify 
all sorts of stuff. That seems to be the the reality of it. You can get extremists and terrorists of anything. You know, there are in, there are environmental terrorists. Right? There are people who say, "Oh, I I want to conserve the world so much, and I care so much about animals that I want to wipe human beings off the planet." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, you know, that, that's that's a strange justification for what you're trying to do there." Um, but yeah, no, it's a it's a really really interesting conversation. I, I'm a, I'm very interested in your. Um, I know you. I know you have written a book on it, but I'm interested in your own conversion story and how that has shifted. As someone who is an atheist for decades, in this case, um, how have your views, even with some of the things you're saying uh, right now in this conversation, how have some of those views changed and developed over time? Because I'm assuming the you of 15 years ago would probably disagree with a lot of the things you're saying now. Yeah. So yeah, when I was um, you know, a teen, going into my early twenties, I was a, I was a kind of hard leftist, like, you know, Marxist, okay, Trotskyist. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> my idea <laughs> okay. is that you know, in a way, I started with Nietzsche and his kind of declaration that God is dead, and I think I drew the natural conclusion that if God is dead, then man is not a creature subject to any kind of cosmic norms. He can do whatever he wants. He can build society, reorder everything which is an invitation to, to precisely the kind of radicalism that disfigured the 20th century. Um, and I took that seriously. But then over time, my uh, views changed, and I'll, I'll go into a little bit of this. Um, um, one of them was, you know, after college, I did a program called Teach for America, uh, which dispatches recent college graduates to underserved communities across the country. And in my case, my Teach for America assignment took me to the U.S.-Mexico border, just on the sort of southern tip of Texas. And um, I and, and I always assumed that the question of uh, the achievement gap, the fact that typically in the United States, children from poor families don't do as well with schooling, those who are typically more affluent, lighter peers, is must be a question of redistributive justice. Like if only um, these school districts had more federal money, then problem could be solved. But when I actually went there, I thought, okay, well, money can be a factor, but there's also other kind of issues like whether the teachers are actually committed to helping these kids teach and then setting expectations and not assuming that just because they're poor, they can't learn. Um, so that, I, I think that shifted me slowly to the political right. Um, and then, you know, I happened to have a roommate. Um, during this time, he was also in Teach for America, he was also a teacher, but he took the job a lot more seriously than I did. I just thought it's like something to put on my resume to like go to something else like law school. Um, whereas in his case, you know, he would show up to class at, at five in the morning, um, and it's a lesson plan, teach very rigorously through the day, and then afterwards stay after school to like help the kids who hadn't learned to do extra work and so forth. Whereas I was just, like I said, I would like to show up at the minimum kind of required time and be as early as possible. But over time, as I watched him, I noticed that, um, you know, his professionalism, his sort of fundamental decency was, was attractive. And it seems to suggest that there is actually a, again, an objective standard of right and wrong in conduct. And if there's an objective standard, then I should try to bring myself to, 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 to measure myself by its yardstick bring myself into conformity with that objective standard. And that led me to ask, you know, where is it, why why was this interior sense seared into me that there is right and wrong? Um, 
in every situation? What was that voice of the conscience that tells you you should try to do good to avoid evil? Um, eventually, after a long time of, of again reading reading the Torah, the, you know, the first five books of the, the Hebrew Bible, and reading Benedict's books, I came to be convinced, as C.S. Lewis was, this was his preferred proof for the existence of God, that the existence of the conscience mm-hmm. um, points to there being some uh, supreme uh, being who is the who is the Lord of that objective moral order. And so that I basically intellectually became convinced that there is a God. Um, and, um, and it didn't bother me that, you know, okay, so there are people who are biologists who would say that that's what you think is your conscience is really just the product of thousands of years of evolutionary change or mm. certain behaviors helped our species and they were ingrained in our minds as, as preferred behaviors. That could all be true as a matter of the how questions. But they didn't answer the why questions, and in order to answer the why questions, you have to go to metaphysics. So, yeah, I mean that's how I became. And I was living in London, and, and um, I was especially drawn to Catholicism for various reasons. I'd gone to the masses a hundred times. Moments in my life where I was in crisis, I don't know why I was an atheist, but I go to Catholic masses. Um, and then eventually, I went to this one mass at the at the Brompton Rectory, which is known for really beautiful kind of traditional liturgy. I was so awed by this that I said, okay, I, I've been called to be a Catholic. I went to the, uh, the oratory house, which is where the priest lives, like the rectory. I knocked on the door and this wise and old English priest answered the door and he had this sort of most posh English accent I've ever heard. And I was like, yes. <laughs> you know, and I said, I want to become a Catholic father. And he didn't miss a beat. He just said, very well, I shall instruct you. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. I'm glad uh, the, the UK is repping in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> what, do, <laughs> what do you think is the future of religion in the Western world? Where do you honestly think things are going? Because I see a lot of different potential paths. Some things are suggesting to me that there could be some sort of resurgence and revival of Christianity. Um, in some sense, I am seeing a lot of people who are either current, even even a lot of vocal, you know, fairly public atheists mm. or agnostics, if not coming to God directly, actually at least appreciating the role of religion more. I think as some of these secular religions and ideologies have come into the picture they've started to sort of appreciate <laughs> they've started to sort of appreciate those roots a little bit more even if they do not literally um understand all of the things or believe in god so much themselves they at least um are more empathetic towards it and can see some of the positives that have come from it um on the other hand there's also data suggesting that you know as each year passes in the UK and the USA there are less people going to church or less people describing themselves as being religious, etc. And then also less so in the in the US, but also in the UK and in Europe, you know, there is a growing Islamic population. There's a growing number of Muslims. They are, you know, in terms of pure demographics, they, they you know, tend to be having more children, etc. And you're starting to see more of a pushback in certain areas, certainly in the UK, coming from the Muslim community. A great example is 
the whole LGBT teaching in schools and stuff, I'm sure you've seen there have been certain communities, especially yeah, in Birmingham up in the Midlands where Muslim parents are the ones saying, no, like I don't want, I do not want my children learning this stuff. This should not be in a school. And it seems like when um, I saw recently there was a Christian, there was a, a, was he a chaplain or like a school, a school priest or something like that who recently was essentially forced to resign or pushed out because I think in he, Scotland somewhere he, 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 organized, yeah, he was it, a priest he was able to organize a kind of maybe, pride. maybe there's two I think oh no, that's a different one that, that's okay. a different one there's just a chaplain in one of the schools here a so-called Christian school where he um, you know they were bringing in organizations and paying for you know these various LGBT organizations to come and you know push gender ideology in the schools etc and he was like no you know he I, very mild-mannered guy. I watched some interviews with him. You know, he's not, this isn't even someone who's forceful. He's just like, no, I think this is a bad idea. I don't think the kids should be learning this at, you know, eight years old or whatever it is. And again, this is a, supposed to be a Christian school. And instead of them responding in a way I thought would, you know, be much better and bolder, they instead decide to fire him to not receive any heat. So... I don't know, with all of those things, I, we're in this position where I'm kind of like, well, what's going on here? And then I think we're also very much in the age of the rise of, um, you know, secular religions slash cults, which are playing a lot of the role of religion for certain people, but without the salvation aspects yeah. and without <laughs> the good stuff <laughs> yeah yeah without without the without the positives just um, the penance and, and the, the discipline yes and not, yes. And not the love um, no you, you i mean you're right about all those trends i i don't know i'm not a good prognosticator um, um and i was i have theological hope so mm-hmm. it, god's in control and it'll all be uh, fine in the very long term um in the short term, I don't know. I see it's, as you said, the same trends of deep secularization. Mm-hmm. Well, secularization is the wrong word because, as you said, these substitute religions in a way yes. are talking about. Um, there was a kind of religious fervor behind the COVID restriction. Oh, boy. Um, Very uh, much so. It, it even has a modesty arms, right? Yes. It, it, I, and, and and uh, as someone I, who also grew up in the Middle East, it's hilarious to me that people. Here I noticed. Now, I, 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 <laughs> I've noticed with with like because I live in the you know, Upper East Side of Manhattan. It's just yeah. kind of this very chinchy, older, and whiter neighborhood, and and the women put up their masks when you walk by. The way you know Mahajiba is locked <laughs> in the makeup, where you see that sort of like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Although it's kind of ending now, but, but yeah. now in all, in, all, in, all, in all seriousness, though, the uh, yeah, I, I think there's de-Christianizations. I shouldn't say secularization because mm-hmm. other substitutes are but there's de-Christianization in the United States among, especially among elites, and then uh, in Europe, it's so widespread. And it's Germany mass attendance rates are so dismal. Um, mm-hmm. So. I don't know, but I, I will speak from a Catholic perspective that the future of the Catholic Church is very much in, in Africa, in South Asia, in East Asia, uh, less so in South America. In South America, obviously, there's um, uh, evangelicals and, and Pentecostals and, and a lot of inroads. Okay. But among Catholics, it's it's um, 
the global south is where the future of the church is, as far as I can tell. And that's that's fine. I mean, there's nothing that said that like just because Europe has like a whole bunch of old cathedrals that that's <laughs> going to always be the center. There there be there be new cathedrals you know, put up in, yeah. in Dakar and, and Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's anything that how would I put this? What are there some mistakes that you think the church is making when it comes to main at least maintaining congregations and maintaining interests? And with that said, what do you think can be done? I'm I'm certainly not a fan of this sort of like you know so-called progressive Christianity, which is just sort of woke them with a cross, yeah, um, and which doesn't seem to have much to do with actual Christianity. I've seen some pretty worrying stuff in that regard. Um, but sometimes, yeah, sometimes I wonder what, what can be done, if anything, you know, maybe nothing is to be done, but what can be done to bring that back? I mean, even when you go to a lot of churches in, in the UK, it might be the same in the US, it's primarily an older demographic. Mm-hmm. You know, there will be some young people, but there's sort of a, the, the, the demographics are not looking good positive no they're, they're not looking good right it's looking yeah, yeah, like okay in a few decades these people will be gone and who's coming to who's coming to replace them uh well we'll see i mean sometimes i think the it feels like the west is sort of slipping into a dystopia honestly um, <laughs> and that that the, that the negative quality will actually be a source of religious awakening hopefully mm-hmm. At some point, people were like, oh, okay, well, this isn't working. Let's see what other answers have been proposed through the ages. Um, I do agree. I mean, one of the things that bothers me as a Catholic is the fact that so many churchmen, Catholic institutions here in the United States, like uh, Catholic universities, are adopting the language of, of critical race theory yep, yep. as a response to racism. Where it's like, no, 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 you have this whole tradition. We have Genesis that says man is made in God's image. You don't need like this pernicious ideology. There's, you have a better answer to racism. And it's, it's the Majo Bay. Mm-hmm. Not, again, not Kindy. I don't know why I keep bringing him up, but not, not. Oh, him, him, him and Robin D'Angelo have D'Angelo, a lot too. Yeah, exactly. Those, those, those two have, those two are responsible for a lot of stuff. I know, they really yeah. have, but, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's good grip if you can get in on it. they've taken race grifting and hustling to a whole what I loved about Robin D'Angelo is I don't know it recently came out that uh, uh, she was was speaking at the University of Minnesota or something and her her speaking feed just absolutely dwarfed her fellow African American speaker (laughs) so like the black speaker was getting paid like 7,500 you know 7,500 Robin D'Angelo was making you know, twenty thousand for yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that equity? Yeah, it, it's it, it's mind blowing to me. It, it really blows my mind that uh, I don't know. We're in a we're in a weird place. There's so there's so many things I'm very optimistic about, and I'm naturally an optimist. And then there are some, but there are some things that I'm just like, okay, this is a really disturbing trend here. Um, you know, with the whole critical race theory stuff and some of this ideology, I'm just like, man there's a good chance the next generation is going to end up being more racist than, say, my generation. Oh, hello. 
This is my daughter, Fina. She was banging her. Oh. <laughs> oh, hello. Say hi. <laughs> Joining in on the podcast. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's one thing that, that does concern me is that, that, yeah, if, I mean, if the critical race theorists are not challenged and are allowed to continue on the path they're on, then they're going to create a whole generation of people who are just, you know, it's, it's just going to go backwards. It's going to go yeah. backwards towards people just seeing themselves as, you know, white people are this and black people are that and just cre literally creating yeah. problems that were solved many decades ago. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, objectivity is a white value. That's the most racist thing I've ever heard. <laughs> logic, logic. <laughs> logic is, is a white math value. Mathematics, staying on, being on time. Ugh. I'm just like, I, I saw that. I was just like, good grief. How, how, <laughs> it's comical in a sense. Like, it does make me laugh. Just like some of the, you know, I'm sure you saw my deadlift where I identified as a woman and, you know, broke the British record and became famous off of that, which is hilarious. But at the same time, I'm just like, how is this a debate? Like, oh, why, why are we still having this conversation about men, biological men competing in women's sports? Like, this should not be a conversation it never was before yeah and you've just now created this problem out of thin air and now here we are and you know people are being called all sorts of horrible names for saying that it's dumb um it's strange and then those same people will claim to be pro-science yes i that's that's, <laughs> that's the hill i will die on text, i will die on that hill because i, yeah. I will not I will not say something that's just not true. <laughs> I won't say two plus two equals four. Yeah, I mean yeah, equals five. five. Right. <laughs> Whatever Winston is for us to say. Yeah. No doubt. So um Sarab, you so your book is it's out it's out now or it's it's about in, to come out? In Britain it comes out in June ten from Hotter and Stoke Okay. So by the time this podcast comes out, the book will be out. So and where will people be able to check it out? Amazon and the usual channels? Amazon.co.uk, you know, the uh, foils, all the British bookstores. Awesome. And where can people find and follow you online? I'm at Sorab Amari, at S-O-H-R-A-B, like Bravo, last name Amari, A-H-N, like Mary, A-R-I. Awesome. And also visit nypost.com if you That's our page that I want. Awesome. Sorab Amari, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's been Cheers. really, really interesting to talk to it's you. It's been fun. It's been great. Thanks, you. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang. Y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.